You think I'm preaching too hard? You have lost your mind. Please, please, um, don't, don't live under the delusion that Steve Lawson and I are actually friends. <laughs> um, well, th I, you know, I know you're really here because the word would have got out from last year or the year before or the year before, there will be a free book. So it's, um, it's worth endu either enduring or thinking, Steve Lawson is sitting there at the front thinking, this guy is a real huckster if he thinks he can get through Romans in 40 minutes. But uh, A, I was asked to do this, um, and B, I'm glad to do it um, in order simply to say to you uh, that when the time comes, as uh, God granted it will come for you, when you do take on the task of climbing the New Testament's Mount Everest, uh, it really is an occasion, and you should, you should seize the occasion. Um, I, have a, I have a kind of long history with Romans. It's, it's gone on for over 50 years. I suppose I own maybe 120 commentaries on Romans. You know, some people collect baseball cards, and other people collect commentaries on Romans. And when I was a student, I think I was maybe just turned 18 at the time, I was in my second year at university, I know exactly where I was sitting, I was in room C37 in Johnson Hall in the university, and it dawned on me that although I understood that all Scripture is breathed out by God, that not everything in Scripture is as fundamental to its structure or to the structure of the gospel as everything else. And it was a very big moment in my life because it, it caused me to think I must really give myself, first of all, to the study of the foundational books, the architectonic books in Scripture. And that had a knock-on effect in the sense that it led to a decision to do the same uh, with uh, the works of the Christian church, and that I ought therefore be willing to put up with the embarrassment of being asked if I'd read the latest thing by saying, no, I haven't read it. And that I would then give myself to the books that really had made a difference. And uh, to me, that was, that was a huge and significant moment in my life. Then the rest of my story is, as a student, I led a Bible study on Romans. In my ministry, uh, I, the only occasion I preached through Romans uh, was sometime in the early 2000s, maybe, at the Keswick Convention in England, which is very different from the Keswick Convention now, uh, if there still is one in the United States. I don't think I managed to finish the book. Um, but the only, I've only once taken a congregation through Paul's letter to the Romans. And it was a huge occasion for me uh, because I'd lived with Romans. It, to be honest, it's never been my favorite book in the Bible, uh, but I'd lived with it for a long time. And 
I think I realized being taken through Romans as a congregational experience is, for most people, going to be maximum uh, twice in a life. And actually, for most Christians, if they're lucky, as uh, that old version of the Scripture says, Joseph was a lucky man. If they're lucky in that sense, someone will take them through Romans once in their life. And I did this in our, our evening congregation. Um, I'm profoundly committed to evening worship. I think people need more of the Word of God than they get in most churches. Um, and I did it in 18 months. Uh, I had a very deliberate reason for doing it in 18 months. And it became a journey for us. Um, so at the end, I was thinking, and, and people were saying, you know, could you not just preach verse by verse through chapter 16? You know, do little studies of all these people, because we did not want it to finish. And the reason why this little fellow is on the front is in our church, we had a weekly newspaper that went out to everybody in the congregation. And at a certain point, I said to my secretary, do you have any Roman soldiers in that box of tricks you have? And she, she gave me this Roman soldier. And I said, I want a, a quarter page in the, in the church paper with that Roman soldier and the words underneath, Romans coming. And this is the only time in my life I've ever marketed a book of the Bible. <laughs> but the next week it was like more Romans coming, and then it was Romans coming to Colombia where we were, and then eventually the, the secret was, was revealed. Um, so I know, it, you know, it, the, the Banner of Truth would never hire me as the marketing manager. Um, but I really wanted our people to sense that if God was with us in this, this would be something we would never forget. Um, and um, so I want to go through Romans with you in 40 minutes, which is two and a half minutes per chapter. And in a way, you could get this in, in the first few pages in any decent commentary on Romans. But I think it's worth us trying to do it together because the book is so significant. So I just want to walk you through the outline uh, that you'll find in your hand now. Say some very obvious things. Clearly, this letter is written by the Apostle Paul as a servant of Jesus Christ. It's written in the context of his own ministry. And uh, just as in other books, often you need to look first at the back of the book in order to discover what's going on at the front of the book. It's by and large later on in the book that we discover where Paul is situated and why it is that he is writing this letter. It's part of the fun of uh, doing that kind of background study that you do some detective work. Uh, that you discover from uh, some of the names who are mentioned there, the fact that Phoebe is involved in this book, that it's possible to locate uh, pretty certainly where Paul was and when it was that he was writing this letter around 55 to 57 AD. And he has a purpose in doing it. And of course, that's always a, it's always an important question to ask. The purpose a person has in writing a letter will actually give you some clues as to how you should read the letter. It's not just an amorphous stream of thought that Paul has. And there are 
there are at least three clues he gives us. First of all, he wants to commend Phoebe. It's not entirely clear exactly why he wants to commend Phoebe. Is Phoebe the carrier of his letter to the Romans? Um, he, he seems to want to commend her for, for some particular service. So she has a purpose in going, and he wants to commend her. And that's, that's just a little footnote. But secondly, it becomes clear that he has a, a special reason for sending this letter to the Romans. Uh, he has been engaged in bringing together the, the collection, which, as you know, is a big issue for him because he is concerned about the, the genuine transcultural and international unity of the Christian church. And so there is this Gentile offering to Jewish believers to give testimony to the world that uh, in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile believers are united. He has also completed uh, some sense of the burden he has had uh, you know what it is to go and preach somewhere, and uh, it, if, you, if you drive or fly, the feeling of going and the feeling of returning are different. The, the burden is off you. And there is a burden from which Paul has been released, and he now wants to move westwards. He wants to preach the gospel in Spain. And it rather looks to me as though what he's after is that just as... Uh, the Christians in Antioch have, have been his equipping church. He's looking to the Roman church to help equip him, provide for him, support him, pray for him, perhaps even send him in this development of the apostolic mission to Spain. And so, one of the things he has to do, because he has never seen them, although he knows a great deal about them, is he's got to place before them his credentials. And there are little hints, aren't there, that the reason he feels the need to do that, to present to them what he calls my gospel. It's a very unique phrase, isn't it? My gospel. That does not mean just the gospel. That means how Paul understands and preaches the gospel. And he feels the need to do this to strangers because there are rumors spreading about him. Um, among them, there are rumors that he is actually uh, either a closet antinomian or a real antinomian. And so he wants to expound the gospel to them. He's also conscious, partly because he has known Aquila and Priscilla, of the, the situation that had arisen in Rome where the Jews and Jewish Christians had been banished from Rome. He's also conscious uh, I think pretty clearly that now the door is open for them. They have returned. Uh, like, uh, you know, a missionary goes away for five years and he comes back to his home church and he realizes they've removed the organ and there's a set of drums in the corner and there are issues in the church. And there is this sense, isn't there, that there, that there is uh, there's a tension. A church that was Jew and Gentile has kind of become a Gentile church. But now the Jewish believers have returned, and there are these tensions that he feels he needs to deal with. And he does this, doesn't he, in Romans 14, 1 to 15, 13. And all of this helps us to flavor 
our understanding of the profound logic of what Paul is doing. Uh, there is an intense logic in what he's doing, very clearly. But there's also a pastoral atmosphere. It's actually a very interesting illustration of being able to preach the gospel to people you don't personally know. You understand there are undergirding structures that will lead to specific applications. And we find that here very evidently, I think, in Romans. So he begins his introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, as you know, uh, expressing his concern for them, his desire to preach the gospel, his desire that they would share together in mutual benefit. And then he turns to the central theme uh, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Uh, the fact that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God, the saving power of God for those who believe, because in it the righteousness of God has been revealed for Jew and Gentile. And if we've caught hold by reading the book backwards, if we've caught hold of the context, then we understand that that Jew and Gentile is not, is not simply a, 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 a theological proposition up there in the sky. But actually, this is so endemic to his understanding of the gospel that it has an immediate application to this group of people in Rome who are the first hearers or readers of his letter. And so this is an announcement of the theme. And from one point of view, superficial though it may be, it's in those terms that it's fairly easy to divide the logic that runs through the letter. And so, as I've divided it, you'll notice that the, the leading word that unites everything he says is that he sees the gospel as a manifestation of the righteousness of God. First of all, a manifestation of the righteousness of God for salvation because Righteousness is lacking universally. The wrath of God is already poured out on unbelief. And I think it's significant against this background, the way in which he is, one might say, very even-handed in dealing with those who have a Gentile background and those who have a Jewish background. I think I would say chapter 118 to the end of verse 32 is a section of Scripture that we need to immerse ourselves in. Um, remember a number of years ago in a British university, some students produced Romans 1, 18 to 3.20 as a pamphlet, not just, as, just as a pamphlet. And uh, they were hauled before the university senatus. And uh, because of this explosive piece of literature that they had written, and the senatus demanded that they bring the author with them, which says a tremendous amount, A, about the ignorance of intellectuals, and B, about the power of the message. Um, and so he's dealing here with universal sinfulness, the way in which in the wrath of God that's already revealed, uh, men and women have been handed over by God. And it's such a telling 
piece of illumination because we live in a world in which people despise the wrath of God, they go their own way, they flaunt the law of God, and one of the things they often say is, there are no thunderbolts. You've, you've told us that God is against these things and, and we're going on our merry way. And Paul makes very clear, that is the evidence that you're under the wrath of God. That he is no longer preventing you. He is permitting you. And then he turns in chapter 2, as some people think, to religious people. I'm more inclined to think that this is the introduction to the whole sweep of what he's going to say uh, about uh, Jewish people in particular, to deal with the, the specific manifestations of alienation from God in those who have been reared in the, in the Jewish community. Remember how in, uh, in Ephesians 2, he refers to himself and he says, we were without God. Not just you Ephesian Gentiles, but we were, we were w with, without God. And he demonstrates this godlessness in the distinctive Jewish ways in which uh, the Jewish people are under the judgment of God. Not because, as it were, they are Jewish people and God is against Jews, but because they have their distinctive manifestation of the sinfulness of their heart over against uh, Paul's understanding of the revelation that they have had, which he will list later on, of course, and uh, what he says later on about the privileges of the Jewish people needs to be borne in mind when we're expounding what he says about the Jewish people, that th these, are, these are sins against mighty privileges. And it leads, as he says, to the judgment of God. And he gives us very sobering analysis of the grounds on which God hands us over, God judges us. And his conclusion, of course, is of universal sinfulness. We have all sinned, and I believe the way he finishes that statement is immensely significant for understanding Paul's gospel. I, Ferguson, I would write, we have all sinned, and fallen short of the law of God. That would be true, but it's not the whole truth. It's not the maximal truth, and it's not the ultimate tragedy. The ultimate tragedy is we were made as the image of God to reflect the glory of God, to enjoy the glory of God, and we have perverted that. That's his point in 118 to 32. And so there is not just condemnation when he comes to say we have all sinned. There, there is this tremendous overpowering sense of the awful tragedy of the human situation. So that statement, it seems to me, is not only, that's, that's not a statement merely of condemnation. That's a statement of majestic compassion because he sees that man that man was not just made to function as an automaton keeping the law of God, but that there is, a, there is an infinite grace in the way in which God has created man as his image for his glory. And the tragedy is that we have lost our destiny. And of course, this is, this is such a powerful 
uh, apologetic in a secular humanist world where secular humanism dehumanizes man by the rejection of God. Once you've rejected God, you cannot have a concept of man made as the image of God. And you must therefore operate with the concept that man is less than that. So it's the humanist who dehumanizes, it's the gospel that rehumanizes. And it should not surprise us against the background of what Paul is saying in this opening section of Romans. But the greatest issue of the uh, Western world in the 21st century is the issue of personal identity that manifests itself in so many ways. Why should that happen? Because once we've lost the understanding that we're made as the image of God, we've lost ourselves and we've fallen short of the glory. So we mustn't read these opening sections of Romans simply as, you know, Paul, a nasty, uh, reformed Christian getting his own back on sinners, but uh, a man who understands the destiny for which we were created, the tragedy of the fall, and the awfulness of our condemnation. And of course, it's only when that is, is in place that the message of the provision of righteousness in Jesus Christ is such a glorious one. These two things just always go together. An increasing sense of the sinfulness of sin that provides the, the dark sky against which the gospel shines out so clearly. So if he begins with uh, introducing the righteousness of God as his theme righteousness lacking in Jew and Gentile. Then from chapter 3, verse 21 through to 521, I recognize the place you divide this is a little tricky. There is righteousness provided now in Jesus Christ, in, in uh, that great section with which this whole passage begins where he, he loads all the big words of salvation in the propitiation that Jesus Christ has made, in the redemption that is provided for us in Jesus Christ. There is the forgiveness of sins and the prospect of new life. And um, I may say this again, but it's worth just pausing to notice that Paul is in the indicative mood all the way along. So he's now, he's now reached into chapter 3, and uh, he's, he's not issuing imperatives. And we should learn something from that, especially if we are a kind of imperatival kind of personality. That the gospel is soaked in indicatives. And it's only when we have held up the power of those indicatives to people that we can release the thunderstorm of imperatives that will follow. And we understand that we're able to do both if we understand the gospel. And so he expounds this gospel, justification by faith in Jesus Christ, proved, chapter 4, by the example of Abraham, uh, bringing in a little David, of course, so that in the mouth of two witnesses, from the Old Testament scriptures, the doctrine of justification by faith may be established, leading to the blessings that flow. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, Christ 
has been put to death uh, for our trespasses. He is raised again for our justification and in this risen Christ. And it's very interesting the language he uses here. Um, although difficult for our translators to, to express the nuance that we, that we gloried in the flesh, but now there is no room for glorying because we've fallen short of God's glory. But now we boast in the gospel, we exult in the gospel because the gospel brings us back to glory. And so 5, 1 through 11 is held together by this notion of the gospel brings us to the glory of God. We are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So if we've missed the fact that we've fallen short of the glory. We'll miss the fact that the gospel brings us back to glory. And this is true even of our sufferings. So that the tribulation works patience, and patience eventually works hope. Hope in what? Hope in the glory of God. And then eventually in 5.11, the, the amazing statement that those who are justified by faith exalt in God himself, in God and his glory. Now, my own view, I'm not sure this is entirely idiosyncratic, but my own view is that, that the connection between 5.11 and 5.12 is this. Me, when I'm done to 5.11, I think I'll start on 6.1. Okay, get into 6.1 to, to 8.39. You know, like this Adam and Christ parallel seems to come out of the stratosphere. So what is Paul doing here? I think this is, in some ways, this is the central passage in Romans. Because it, what, it's what links what he has said about human sinfulness and what he is now going to say about the working of the grace of God in his theology of the two Adams. So, Adam the first undergirds what he has said about sinfulness, and Adam the second undergirds what he has said about salvation through Jesus Christ. And it also then undergirds what he is about to say about the application of that redemption in our Christian experience. So, there is righteousness lacking, there is righteousness provided, and there is, simply to satisfy Steve Lawson, righteousness reigning. Amen. Righteousness Amen. reigning. Um, remember how Paul ends 5, that grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ. And chapter 6, verse 1, to chapter 8, verse 39 is therefore about the reign of righteousness through the reign of grace. And I think if we, if we see what Paul has done, we, we catch what he does in these three chapters. These three chapters should not, I think, be viewed chronologically in terms of their logic. These three chapters should be viewed synchronously in terms of their logic. 
He is working out the significance essentially of one statement, that all we need for salvation is to be found in Jesus Christ. He had said that we, we, we rejoice in God himself through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace reigns through righteousness in our Lord Jesus Christ. So how does that work out for those who are in Christ? He raises the, 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 the question, of course, in, in 6.1, if, if the more sin, the more grace, should we not go on sinning? And his answer essentially is, you have not understood what it means to be in Christ. And in 6 and 7 and 8, he is explicating what it means to be in Christ in a threefold context. Context number one in chapter 6 is that in Christ, the dominion of sin, the reign of sin over the individual has been radically broken. Yet, the individual, while radically delivered from the dominion of sin, is not yet delivered from the presence of sin. And therefore, the indicative, you have died to sin, you've been raised to newness of life, gives rise to the exhortations in 11 through 14, that since you have been delivered from sin's reign, do not let sin reign over you. You are now no longer a servant of sin and unrighteousness, but a servant of Christ and righteousness. Chapter 7, in Jesus Christ, you have not only died to the dominion of sin, but you have died to the condemnation of the law. But just as there is an already and a not yet in chapter 6, so in chapter 7. You have died to the condemnation of the law, but you are not yet made perfect according to the standards of the law. And at least in my own view, that's the key to understanding 7.14 to 25. If I'm delivered from the condemnation of the law in Christ, but not yet perfected according to the standards of the law, that deliverance from its condemnation is going to produce in me a deep sensitivity to the ways in which my life still does not perfectly conform to that law. But Jesus Christ will deliver me. So I'm no longer under the dominion of sin, but sin has not been banished from my life, but one day it will be. I'm no longer under the dominion of the law. I'm not perfect according to its standard, but thank God one day I will be. And then in, in chapter 8, I'm no longer in the flesh, in the sense of being dominated by the flesh. I'm in the spirit. But my life lived in this world does not yet perfectly conform to the life of the spirit. But one day it will. And so there are these groanings, the groaning of creation, the groaning of the believer, the, the groaning of the Spirit ministering within us. There is the vastness of what is already ours because we've been delivered from the flesh and are now in the Spirit. And if anyone doesn't have the Spirit, they don't have Christ and are none of His. 
But if we have Christ, we have the Spirit, delivered from the reign of the flesh, but not yet delivered from the presence of the flesh. And in a world that uh, has been dominated by the flesh, and so Paul gives us this, this wonderful expression that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the consummation of the adoption to which the Spirit bears witness. And if that is true, the end of Romans chapter 8, because think of the connection between 8.32 and Jesus' teaching in the gospel. Your heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit his best gift to those who ask him. If God did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, then he will freely, through the Spirit, give us all things. And that leads, interestingly, at the end, to that series of questions which, interestingly, are, are put in the personal forum. Not what is going to separate me, but who will separate me. I think he's actually, I think he's actually now, as it were, in the background, revisiting the story of Adam and Eve that lies behind much in chapters uh, 118 through to 521, and he realizes that uh, there is another dimension to this, and we still have an enemy, but he cannot separate us. He cannot condemn us. His accusations fall short, and so we triumph. There is the triumph of grace in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's that high point, it seems to me, it's that high point that psychologically, and sometimes it's difficult to answer the question, why does his mind move from 8.39 to 9.1? Yeah, it's okay to say the Holy Spirit inspired him, but that still doesn't answer the question. What is going on in his mind? And I think what's going on in his mind is we have reached the apex here. We want to conclude here. But there is another element to the already of the gospel and the not yet. And that is his own people, the Jews. And so 9 to 11, uh, he deals again with the righteousness of God. In history, God's righteousness rejected by his own people, and yet ultimately vindicated in the way in which the gospel will work through history. And so in chapter 9, God's righteousness established in history, where he vindicates the righteousness of God. Chapter 10, God's righteousness received only by faith. And then in chapter 11, God's righteousness revealed in Jew and Gentile in chapter 11, verses 1 through 36, that in a sense now brings him to a parallel conclusion to the conclusion he had reached at the end of chapter 8. End of chapter 8, he's thinking about the glorious way in which the righteousness of God is vindicated in the salvation of his people. And then in that paean of praise in 11.33 to 36, the way the righteousness of God which we experience individually and as the church in our salvation will be expressed as it were, cosmically expressed 
in God's purposes consummated in history. And the fact that I've dealt with Romans 9 to 11 in three minutes should not be taken as an indication that they are insignificant words at all. But then step back and think, we have now had 11 chapters, and there is hardly an imperative. I was once actually taken into a room at a conference I was speaking on and given a doing over by the leaders of the conference for having given two of the four addresses they'd asked me to give on knowing Christ. And they ate me up because I had not yet told them anything that they had to do. And I, you know, I'm a a mild-mannered Scot, introverted. I sat there humiliated but the bubble above my head was, you don't even begin to understand how the gospel works if you're saying these things. You're making up your own gospel. You're standing the gospel on its head. And and there there has been in, I think, in the evangelical culture broadly, a tremendous emphasis on imperatives because they're so much easier to preach just as it's so much easier to preach about sinners' sinfulness because you know about it than it is to preach about Jesus' glory about which we know so little. And so there's a huge lesson to be learned from Paul here in the way he embeds their thinking in the great indicatives of the gospel. But then the floodgates open. And uh, this great fifth section from chapter 12, verse 1 to 15, 13, in which the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel, lacking in sinners, provided in Jesus Christ, vindicated in history, is manifested in his people. And he deals with this, the response to the gospel in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the way in which this works out, how the gospel works out in the body of Christ, these marvelous ways in which he deals with that notion. And then, of course, for these Roman Christians in the realities of political and social life in 13, 1 through 14. And then a very significant way in the, in the, the very subtle way he deals with the issue of the weak and the strong. Um, And in essence, he makes several points. One of the most interesting points he makes is that the people he calls the weak are actually the people who regard themselves as having strong consciences. How can it be that a person with a strong conscience is actually weak? And you you will meet these people. You know these people. You may actually be these people. They pride themselves on their strong consciences. So you should follow conscience, shouldn't you? Well, yes, but conscience is not scripture. Conscience needs to be educated. It's one of the most fatal mistakes Christian makes to think that because they're regenerated, their consciences have been well instructed in scripture. And so Paul deals with this. How do those who have entered into a a new sense of liberty, uh, how do they have fellowship with those who are are perhaps condemning them? And he he does it very wonderfully. He says to those who, um, who have liberty, 
He says, you need, you need to understand this principle. This is the essence of it. And this, I think this is a word for, for, I'm sure it's not a special word here, but I think it's a word for our generation. The proof that you have real Christian liberty in respect to something that someone else may feel bound is that you do not need to exercise that liberty. And you never flaunt it. And, you know, I'm an old man now. I've, I've seen too much younger liberty flaunting that liberty in the face of others. And Paul says, essentially, the moment you need to, ex- the moment you need to exercise your liberty, I've got to exercise my liberty, unless you're dealing with Pharisees whose teeth you should kick in, according to Calvin. The moment, you, the moment you need to exercise that liberty may be the moment that you are in bondage all over again. And you see how, how this ministers to the unity of the fellowship. And that brings him to his conclusion, 1514 to 1627, his vision for his future ministry, his excitement about visiting Rome, his greetings to the Christians, chapter 16, 1 to 16, his, his warning against enemies, his confidence. And here you, can, you again see the extent to which somewhere playing in the background is the, is the symphony of the opening chapters of the Bible, that the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Um, it's a great promise to be given in the gospel. And then the way in which he sends the greetings of his companions. What's really striking about chapter 16 is the number of people Paul knows and loves. And this is just a fragment of his huge apostolic heart that leads eventually to the apostolic doxology of chapter 16, 25 through 27. Well, my stopwatch didn't work. I have no idea whether that was 40 minutes or not. Um, enjoy my little soldier. I should say to you, if, if this is tweeted, faxed, emailed, the little soldier actually will come out of the page and, and he will, he'll, put his, he'll put his little thing right through your belly. <laughs> so this is, this is exclusively for us. We are the Romans in 40 minutes, people. So, God bless you if uh, the day comes when uh, you feel that you're in the foothills of uh, the Himalayas um, and you're, a, you're about to climb this mountain. Um, and I certainly, just as a testimony, um, I am, it, it was it was really a challenge to me in my, I was certainly in my, I think I was in my early 60s with all these commentaries on Romans. Um, it was a tremendous challenge to preach on it. But I must say, having thought, this should be a whole congregation experience. We're on a great journey. I should not minimize the fruit of this. Um, I kind of look back on it, and I think it was, you know, it was just one, it was one of the greatest 18 months in my life, and, and I think by God's grace and in the life of our people.
Um, so even if you love John's gospel more than you love Romans, don't forget Romans. And thanks for coming. And um, you can now get the, what you really came for. <laughs>I'm sure you'd all uh, want me to thank Dr. Sinclair Ferguson uh, most warmly for his time this morning. Um, I think uh, keep this in your Bible. One of the reasons we did this as a fairly small little thing is it will sit in your Bible. It can stay there. And when you finally get to the point in your ministries where you feel that you understand enough of Romans, and that might be when you're 60 years old, uh, to preach through the book of Romans, then hopefully this will still be there to give you some help when you start to look at the structure of the book. We're a little bit out of time, so we're not going to take any questions, but just to remind you, pick a book up as you leave. Uh, if you want to come and have a look at other uh, books of the Banner of Truth, we have tables in the book tent, so do please visit us there. Hopefully we haven't been washed away. I noticed the river was starting to run through there this morning. Um, but hopefully we haven't been washed away, so do come and have a look. Um, so as we close our time, I'd just like to read to you uh, that doxology at the end of Romans. Uh, so Romans 16, verse 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.